0: You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Give it up for my man, Russell!
1: (laughs) Uh, Thank you, Roland. Good morning, family. It is so good to see you. It's a great day to be in the house of God. I tell you, one thing I really look forward to on Sundays is coming here because the presence of God is just so palpable. And a part of that is because of you because of how your interactions are with each other, just the love that is felt there. So I commend you for that church. Uh, for some of you, you may not know, my name is Russell, and I'm one of the leaders here at Rethink Church. And if you are new here, we would love to connect with you. Um, you can meet us at the One Cup Cafe after service, and we can answer any questions that you have, or even just if you want to like, get to know us, and we want to get to know you, you're welcome to meet us there and have a cup of coffee. Um, There's also another way you can connect with us. You connect with us uh, virtually. Um, You can text here to 219-233-2311 and just let us know we're here. I'm not sure if you all are aware, but spring is coming. It is tomorrow. Yeah, man, that's something to get excited about because I'm so over this winter weather. But um, It's an opportune time, right, with spring coming, to sow a seed of kindness. In your seats, you will see these little cards that say an act of kindness. And I encourage you, um, you all have friends, you all have family, people that you know, to just do a kind act to them, right? It's a, a great way to change the lives of those, one person at a time, through an act of kindness. As you do that act of kindness, whatever it may be, maybe a cup of coffee, taking someone out to lunch, something as simple as a hug, right? Um, I encourage you to pay it forward, right? Give them that card and challenge them to do an act of kindness in their communities also. Um, again, if you are new here, you can feel free to tune out because this part really isn't for you. But if you call Rethink Church your home, if you consider yourself part of the family, tune in because this is for you. This is the part of our service where we partner with God, um, with our finances, with our treasure, to move the kingdom forward. And I encourage you to bring your tithe and your offerings. Um, God has sustained Rethink Church. I just uh, commend you family for, you know, this past few years when we had the pandemic, when we had just uncertainty in the world, you all still stayed committed to the vision of what God was doing in Maryville. And, um, yeah, it just goes, it shows a lot of your generosity and your obedience to God. Um, There are two ways that you can give here at Rethink Church. Um, One way is the black box in the back of the sanctuary. And another way is to go online to rethinkchurch.cc. And on the website, you'll see a giving tab. Just click that, fill out your information. That's a subway for you to give. Um... I want to share a uh, scripture with you. It's in 2 Corinthians. It's 9 and 8. Let me up, let me phone for the Bible. I'm going to go from 6 all the way through 9, or 6 to 8. Uh, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I'm actually going to stop there. My point in this scripture is this. I'm not telling you how much to give, but that's between you and God. And I encourage you, as you prepare your hearts to give, to bring it before God. Lord, how much should I give today? If should I give it all today? And just make that conscious effort to get the Holy Spirit involved in your decisions. Okay? Um... Yes, not by impulsion, but by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. All right, church, uh, thank you for tuning in for these announcements and for faith hearts for the word that's going to come forth tomorrow.
0: church, my Mark. Market, the pastor of church. A few years ago, my family and I, we said, hey, we're in the mid-30s. What should we do? Let's move to a place you don't know anyone and start a church. So that's what we did. So that's awesome. And uh, if you noticed when you came in the back, there's some baskets in there. And I'm going to be honest, I have no clue what the details are, but I bet you, Betsy will. So she's going to be back there. It's for our Easter Acon, we have an Easter Acon on Easter. Uh, and so we asked you guys to participate, grab some baskets, fill it in. Don't ask me details, because I don't know. But that's he will, and I bet you Heather will, to achieve. And I bet you there's some written instructions somewhere in there. So <laughs> fill it up with candy, I'm guessing, and bring it back. And then we're going to have an Easter, egg you know, for the kids on Easter Easter Sunday. So uh, if you want, we're going to get into Ruth. Ruth chapter 1 is where we're going to go. Don't worry, we're not going to get that far into Ruth. But we're going to take a couple weeks to get ready for Easter looking through the book of Ruth, okay? Uh, so if you have Bibles in your laps, phones, whatever, it doesn't really matter. As we get ready, or started getting ready into this passage and into this series, I uh, asked a couple ladies, hey, read the Book of Ruth, write down details, writing like, questions and this, anything like that, and I was blown away by their insights and their questions and what they saw in the Book of Ruth and how it was just this intriguing thing for me to learn from my sisters in the faith, but, like how they read the scriptures. And so, because I don't know if you know, these guys and girls are different. They're going to read the same thing come away with different insights. So, it was extremely helpful, so thank you ladies for doing that. Uh, here's where it starts, right? Let me just pull up through chapter 1 and I'll read as far as we get into it. So, uh, in those days of the judges' rule, there was a famine in the land. So, the man from Bethlehem uh, the Judah together with his wife and two sons. So, it was a family of four. And they went to live in the country of Moab. Of the man's name was Elimelech. His uh, wife's name was Naomi. And they had two sons of and Kilion they were Ephraites from Bethlehem and Judah, and they went to live in the land uh, of Moab. Now, you and I read over this, we're like, cool, but there's some massive like bonds that are dropped right here. In the days of the judges ruled, right? So we can read over that. If we were to read like in the days of revolution, where does that put us to automatically in our brains? 1700s, right? We said civil war? We didn't understand it. So the author of Ruth, whoever that was, is putting us into a timeline for us to understand that these are not just isolated books. These are somewhere in this timeline of these things. So, you just just get up to the days of Judges, okay? So you have Genesis, God's created the earth, all that, Noah's happened, all this. Abraham comes in Genesis chapter 12 and he says, hey, I'm gonna move you from the land of Chaldeans. You're gonna go to a place you don't know. All you have to do is follow me. Nothing big, right? 1,800 miles later, he goes to Israel the land of Canaan, and he has a family that becomes a larger family through those descendants. And then eventually those descendants find themselves into the land of Egypt where they spend 400 years. 400 years enslaved, they go from a small, sorry, a, a large family to a small country-type nation, and then God hears the cries of the oppressed, and he leads up this guy named Moses, and he says, hey, Moses, why don't you go tell Pharaoh to let my people go? We have a 1980 song from it, if you grew up in the church, Pharaoh, Pharaoh right? And we get all that, right? So we get there. And so Moses leads the first generation out of, ex, uh, out of Egypt, out of slavery, and then they don't want to obey God. They just got rescued, but they have every intention. They, like, keep saying this. Can we go back to Egypt? It was it was nice there. They were, they were so enslaved, they didn't realize that they were slaves. And I think that's some of the biggest oppression that we can see in our world today. That we get so consumed, we get so addicted to the things in our current life, that even when we find freedom, when God liberates us, we're like, mm, I like that way back better, right? I would rather just deal with filling the blank. Because it's easy. Well, God was like, no, no, I want you to trust me, and we're gonna, you're going to obey me. Now, parents, we know this. If a child trusts you, then they're going to obey you, right? And this is just simple. If you trust, you're going to obey. You can say all you want, but your actions will follow up. Right, and this is part of that process that, that we see over and over again in the scriptures that Jesus, sorry, that God is saying, "Hey, trust me, and I'll bless you. Obey me, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll, bless you." And that generation that leaves Egypt rejects God, not just once, but over and over and over again. So God kindly just says, "Okay, you don't know want the Promised Land. You don't have to." And so they wander for forty years, and that generation dies off. The second generation comes into play. And, and then God, through Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, is telling them, okay, as you enter this land, here's how
1: you have to live,
0: right? And so they go into this, what we call the conquest generation, the second generation, and they go in and they start taking over the, the promised land and start establishing their the places in Jericho and the Gaza and all these other places. Everybody, every, everywhere but Jerusalem. They don't get into Jerusalem until later. And so it's in that process that they're taking over these lands in miraculous ways, right? There's just no way to, to explain it. And then that generation is, passes on to Joshua, and Joshua leads them, and then in the book of Judges says this, the very beginning of the parts of Judges, that the entire generation that knew Joshua and his ways died off. And nobody knew the ways of God. And in Deuteronomy, you have this, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that parents, our main responsibility is to impress the words of God, the ways of God, on your children. And nobody knew the ways of God in this generation of the, of the judges. Let's just back up. How do you not talk about the exodus? How do you not tell your kids, hey, by the way, we used to not live here. We used to live in this place called Egypt. It was like, we were slaves, but like, had nice food. You know what I mean? Like, I guess you could say that.
1: Right? Like, this is like, how do you
0: not tell about the Jericho time? We didn't have to raise the sword. All we had to do is march around. And all of a sudden, the walls fell down. Right? And, and how do you not tell the, 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 the feats of the conquest, the, like how God provided for them and all this? They didn't tell them anything. Parents, read the book of Judges as a warning. That if you do not impress the ways of God onto your children, you're setting them up. And we want to talk like every generation has this this conversation, right? This emergent generation sucks. They're not like entitled. We've been hearing this since the 1900s, right? Like 1910, 1907, all that. Like we heard it generation after generation after generation, what I always like to tell adults, that children are the products that they grew up in. It's your responsibility, right? So every generation sucks according to the established generation. The emergent generation is like always entitled you're entitled to your parents too. Get over it. Suck it up, let it go, let's move on, right? Like That's the whole process that we have to go into this and just say, okay, how do we do this? Now, this is why it's crucial. Notice in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God is not telling a church leader, a church people, to impress the ways of God. onto He's talking to parents. We talk, I'm just going to bring these numbers back up. 40 hours on average for a church to spend with a child a year. 40 hours compared to 3,000 that a parent was spend with a child. Who has the better way of impressing? It. It's the parents, right? So that's a part of this process. So in the days of Judges, we have these places, and we just have this, keep that in mind, that's the timeline. And so we have these ideas, you and you can see this over and over again. Joshua went away with them, and then you see the cycle that goes on in the book of Judges where uh, Israel is living and following God. They're obeying God. They're just doing this. Rush is going to put this up here in a second, the cycle that you see. And so God's protecting them, and then God was God's protecting Israel's sin, and then God lifts his hand of protection off of them. And he's like, okay, you want to live this way? Live this way. You want to worship that God? See if that God will protect you. See if there's a famine that will come. See if there's another enemy that will come around. Israel will cry out. And then God will deliver them. And then because God will deliver them, they start obeying them instead of living faithful to God. And it's a cycle over and over and over again. It's this generational cycle that we see, right? God has warned them time and time again. If you, if you obey me, I'll bless you. In Deuteronomy 6, it talks about how God wants to bless them to the point where they're almost annoyed by being blessed. Anyone ever want to live like that? Too much blessings, God, I don't wanna handle this, right? But then he says, hey, by the way, if you disobey me, I'm gonna curse you to the point where you'll be miserable. And that's like, that's part of this process that we have to understand as well. Uh, So, Judges ends like this, it says this. Now, when you think about some of the darkest days of Israel, that's the book of Judges. You have murder, you have incest, you have stabbing each other in the back as communities, you have a civil war that breaks out, you have people that just like, and, and it's so easy to read the book of Judges and be like, oh, I want to be Gideon. Do you? You want to make people worship a Nephah that you have? Samson is not a hero. No. Samson is disgusting to like, read through, especially when you read through the book of the, of the lines of the Nazarite vow. You're like, "Whoa, well, he breaks everything. This, this is what I love about the Bible. He does, like, the authors of the Bible Some God got authors through, the, through humans. He does not say, hey, hide the bad stuff and only bring up the good stuff. And you and I get to read this and say, remember, the Bible's not written to us. It's written for us. You and I are never our original audiences to the Bible. But we get to read this and say, okay, how, what can I learn from you? How do I apply this to my life? It's not just about having knowledge and saying, oh, Samson had long hair. Great. What did that do for you? <laughs> Nothing. Good. Right? So, it's not about just having knowledge. It's like, how do I actually apply this? What do I actually put this into practice for my own life? And we're going to look into this. Now, here's how the book of Judges ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did, see, did whatever seemed right through his own eyes. Sound familiar? Sound like our day? So, it's in this context that the book of Ruth happens, right? And there's this, this famine that takes place, and if you're a student of the scriptures, like, they probably weren't because they're in the days of the judges, but they did whatever they wanted. Ruth is written for the descendants probably around the time of David and stuff like that because David will become a descendant of Ruth. I think what the author of Ruth is trying to get them to understand is, hey, there's some places here. Now, that word famine is like this, this we call it dropping the pearl and stringing the pearls. We've talked about this before, right? If I were to say, Luke, I am your father. what move am I talk? Star Wars, did I have to tell you the whole context of the video with the plot and all that? Did I have to tell you that the middle three are the best? The original, the first three sucked, and the last three, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I didn't have to tell you that, right? Did I have to tell you that Darth Vader's the one who says it? All of a sudden we just put ourselves back there, right? What if I tell what, what if I were to say this is high quality H2O? Anyone know the movie? <laughs> Waterboy. Do I have to tell you the whole context of it? No, you just put it in there. This is what. This is what the word famine is doing. The author of Ruth is dropping this in here. He's putting the word famine very specifically and saying this is a drawback to Deuteronomy chapter 26 and 28. Let me give you the context here. God is leading the nation of Israel into the promised land. the second generation. They take half the nation of Israel on one mountain. They take half the nation of Israel on the other mountain. One of them is calling out curses. One of them is calling out blessings. This is how you get cursed by God. So you get blessed by God. And they're literally shouting it back and forth doing this. I was talking to Heather. I was like, imagine just wandering through the desert someday. And you hear these people shouting these curses and blessings on each other. Like, what the heck is going on? It's like hundreds of thousands of people yelling back and forth in these mountain ranges. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, if you faithfully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of his commands I'm giving you today, the Lord your God will put you far, far above the nations of the earth. All the blessings will come and overtake you, and you'll bless them and obey them, because you're a blessing of obeying the Lord. He
1: goes on to say, But if you do not obey
0: the Lord, by carefully following his commands and the statutes I am giving you today, all these curses will come on and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and the curse in the country. Your basket and your eating bowl will be cursed. Your offspring will be cursed. Your these produce will be cursed. The herds, your young newborn flocks will all be cursed as well, which is giving us the idea, oh, there's a famine, right? He goes later on, and he drops the word famine right in the middle of this, and he's warning us, like, if we follow God and obey God, he's going to bless us to the point where we're like, please stop blessing us. I don't know if anyone would actually say that, but, like, it's going to be to the point like, oh, my goodness, I'm too blessed here, God. If you curse us, or sorry, if you disobey, he's going to curse us. He's lifting his hand of protection over you. Because what we have to acknowledge is that every good thing that we have is because he's protected us and provided for us. This is what he's done for us. You and I may have natural giftings and and talents and all that, but God has somehow given you the ability to have those. And when we don't acknowledge God with that, then we're actually saying we're better than God. We probably won't come out and verbally say that, would we? But with our actions, with our attitude and stuff like that, that's exactly what's happening. So God gives them the warning. Israel ignores them. I'm so glad, by the way, that Israel is the only people in human history that's ever had to deal with this, and that we've never had to deal with any of this, right? So, as a culture, uh, we can look at this and say, "Okay, how do we actually look?" Because we live in a culture. Think about I was thinking about the emerging generations. Since probably goes back even further, but since 2008. Our children have recognized and seen irresponsible spending, government bailout. Right? You have the auto industry, you have the mortgage companies, and all this. Irresponsible spending, horrible business practices, don't worry, the government bail you out. We live in a culture that we have created. Right? Now, you and I are probably not the ones deciding, hey, I want to spend my money to bail out other people, right? That's not us, but like there's this part of this responsibility, part of the, uh, the question I ask my students all the time in my classes, whose responsibility is to create the culture and society we want to live in? And it's an ongoing question for 12 weeks. And at the very end of it, we'll pull it all together. If you're in my class, don't worry about it. But we'll pull it all together and we say it's actually a little bit of all of us. The government has some responsibility the business sector, the, the medical sector, all of this, we have responsibility. But wherever sector you're in, you play the role. You can't just sit back and be like, well, I hope it gets better, and do nothing about it. This is part of what we get to do. We actually get to, like, put our actions into this practice and stuff like that. And so, while we're not necessarily under the law of the Hebrew Scriptures, we have to understand that it impacted Jesus as well. Jesus would boil all of this down to love God and love others. How well do you love God? How well do you love others? And he, like, God has warned us time and time again, if you follow me, I'll bless you. If you don't, I'm gonna curse you. Right now, this sounds harsh, doesn't it? But this mo- this idea—we talked about this in my bandit group uh, a couple weeks ago—and uh, we were reading Second Thessalonians. That Paul literally says in the in this, to the Thessalonian church: hey, If somebody's not following Jesus but claims to be a follower of Jesus, shame them. He's not winning people and influencing, like winning friends and influencing people, is he? With those kind of it's this whole like concept of like. Now here's the point. The point of shaming, the point of famine, is not just to live in that, that shame and that famine, is it? God's whole intention is a wake-up call. Notice the cycle. They follow God, they're living protected. They sin, God lifts His hand of protection off them. Then they cry out, and then they repent, and then God delivers. Right? It's the end goal is not hey, God's not looking back. I can't wait to get him right? That's not the end goal. The end goal is so that we actually cry back out to God. We talked about this before. The psalmist will tell us this. It's not your sin that separates you from God. It's your pride that keeps you from confessing your sins that that keeps you from God. Once you confess your sins, no matter what they are, you humble yourself, you confess your sins, God is willing and will be right there to forgive you. But once you keep hiding them, you're like, ooh, I can't confess that to God, as if he doesn't know or already know, that's what keeps us separated from God. And so, let's play in, let's, let's keep that in mind, okay? So famine is not the end goal. Famine is the wake-up call, all right? Now, it's not just that they leave Bethlehem and go to a place. They go to a place that's despised. They go to a place of Moab. Russ is going to put a picture up here of a map of Bethlehem and Moab. Here is the distance. It's about 35, depending on which plains of Moab you go to. Um, you can see this. It's about fifty miles. If you go the wrong, the long way, thirty miles. If you go the shorter way. Which, by the way, the ancient uh, people walked twenty to twenty-five miles a day, so a couple days' journey, right? You're not talking wings. You're not talking. You're just talking. Okay, cool. You can see this, right? Now, as the nation of Israel was walking, leaving Egypt, leaving Egypt, to go into the promised land, Moab and Ammonites were just despicable people. They like the king of Moab hired this guy, his name is Balak. he hired a guy named Balaam to curse the nation of Israel as they were walking through the land, and they did it. He could not physically curse the nation of Israel. And if you know your Bible, this is where the talking donkey comes into play, and stuff like that. And he's like, what? you like, you about that talking donkey? Before Shrek, it happened. Right? <laughs> and so,
1: this is all part of
0: that process. This is all of there. But here's how they put Deuteronomy chapter 23, here's what he says. God, Moses writes this down. No Ammonite? No Uh Moabite may enter the Lord's assembly. None of their descendants, all the way down to the 10th generation. The whole purpose of God moving Israel, the people of Abraham to the land of Israel, was to be a blessing for the nations. And here God is saying, those two people groups will never come to my assembly. Down to the 10th generation. They must have done something to despise Yahweh and his people, right? Which by the way, this is why you just don't mess with God's people. Which by the way, all of us are God's people. We're all God's children, right? So you can't just be like, oh, you are gonna piss off a dad, you can kill, like, destroy you, right? Not just you, but say, hey, all the way down to the tenth generation. Remember who you're talking to. Does that make sense? So there's some history there, there's some tension that goes on in there. So in the time of the, the time of the judges, in the time most biblical times, humans are coming out of the hunter-gatherer stages. They're into the agricultural land, so does that make sense? This is the era of them. There's two ways to be successful. You have to do these two things to be successful in this culture. Number one, produce a male son, so your lineage goes on to so the next generation, your family, your family name and stuff like that. The second one is to keep your family plot of land. Do not abandon your plot of land, so that that land itself can go down to the next generation. Right. So when Elimelech and Naomi leave Bethlehem, which, by the way, the house of the Bethlehem means house of bread, there's a famine in the house of bread. How strange can that be, right? There's a like literally it's, it's known for its grain fields, it's known for its barley harvests and stuff like that. <clears throat> so when Naomi and Elimelech leave Bethlehem to go to Moab, it's not just that they're leaving, but it's also weird. And when you stand on Bethlehem's Hill, okay, we weren't able to do it because when I was there, um, just because of political tensions and stuff like that, it's this massively uh, packed city. The only reason it's really packed right now is because it's where Jesus was born. Right? There's an artist rendition, Ruts, we're going to put up here in a second, of the, the city the village of Bethlehem. Uh, and you can see when you stand on the hill, I've had friends who do this, they can see over the Dead Sea. And you can see into Moab, which is modern day Jordan. You can see, it's like, you can see this. So when Naomi and Elimelech are leaving Bethlehem, what they're really doing is the grass is green on the other side. They can see that they're not, they don't have a family. Wouldn't that really suck to sit in a community and see everyone around them flourishing with you? And So what did most of us do? We usually leave too, right? I love Daniel Block's, uh, his commentary on this. Here's what he said. Instead of dealing with the root causes, they, like in like Naomi, reacted to symptoms. Instead of recognizing the famine to be a punishment for the nation's sins and repenting of their spiritual infidelity, they left their people and their land and they went to the unclean land of Moab. Once again, it's not just that they left, it's where they went to as well. And some of us are doing this as well. You, you find yourself in a, in a famine-type situation, and you're like, God, why are you cursing me? But like, you don't want to change your behavior. You don't want to change your lifestyle. You're, you're willing to constantly say the same lifestyle, right? And then you're like, God, can you bless me? I watched, I just I just watched that one, that show had a little bit of sex. In it. It's not that big a deal, right? Those websites, the way I talk about people, telling people they're number one all the time when I'm driving, right? Like, and then you like you want God to bless you, and you're like, "Well, how do I comply with that? Why would God bless you while you're living like this?" I'm glad nation of Israel is the only group of people dealing with this kind of stuff. Right? We would never have to deal with this, but they do. And so most of us have like literally just moved or changed churches, changed houses, changed communities, but we've not actually matured. We've gotten older. We've done this cycle for a couple times and throughout the decades, right? And so maturity-wise, you're still the 22-year-old. but you're 45, you're 50, whatever. But you won't mature, you'll just get older. And what God wants to do is mature you through these seasons. He's not causing the famine. He's lifting his hand of protection off of them. And the famine isn't, and even if he is causing the famine, it's not there just to be the famine. He's, it's there to give us a wake up call. So here's this role that they're playing. And so, let's work through some of the names because the names are gonna be massively important. Alumni Life it means my God is my King. Naomi means Pleasant One. Melion, or sorry, Kelion is sickly, and Nathalon Kel- uh, is weakly. Now, the way that you named people in the ancient world, was a physical characteristic or something you wanted to live, to live into? Does that make sense? I can almost guarantee you that Elimelech and Naomi were not like me and I want my kids to be known as weak and sick people. Right? And if they did, that's
1: horrible.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But, that's what their names mean in the Hebrew. Sick and weak. My guess is they were born sick and weak. And so here's this role that they play. And so they go, they leave Bethlehem, the house of house of bread, while there's a famine going on, they go to Moab, and they lived there for 10 years. And that's not just, it was just to get out of this family. You're establishing a lifestyle at this point, right? To the point where your two sons now marry Moabite ladies. Now, the names that we know are probably not their actual names. They had Moabite names. We just don't know what they are. What they decided to do, the author of the, of the book of Ruth is give them the Hebrew names. Once again, it's a characteristic, it's probably a nickname type of a thing. But Oprah is one of the daughters-in-law. Her name, her name either means fawn or neck. You choose. If it's the neck, it kind of makes sense. Maybe she had a giraffe-like neck, I don't know. Right? Ruth is companion or friend. Right? So these are the nicknames that they're going with and they're looking for and all that. And so this is part of the process. Now, Women in the ancient world had ways of layers of protection and provision. That's the only, this is not our current culture. We cannot take our culture as ideologies and put them into the Bible. That's not how this works. Yeah. So the way that the woman was provided for, taken care of, was layers of protection and provision. Number one was her father. Her dad would always be there to take care of and provide and stuff like that. And then when, they got, when she got married, she, he passed that responsibility off to the father, to the sorry, her husband. And then when the husband would something where would give you a to die, when the kid was young and stuff like that. Then they would go back to the father, right? But if there's an older son who could take care of it and stuff like that, then that responsibility went to the, to the oldest son and throughout the sons' gener order and stuff like that. So let's think about Naomi here. She's not going back because her dad's probably dead, just because of age. Does that make sense? So now her husband is dead. So now the responsibility of providing and protecting goes to her sons, and now they're dead. Naomi is exposed. Naomi is lacking, right? She's not protected. There's no provision. She's too old to do work, right? She has no rights. She has no family. She's left desolate in a foreign land. And she has nothing to do. She's a victim of death, and she's a victim of life. Maybe some of us can play with that. Maybe some of us can say, yep, I've been there. I'm, I'm literally exposed. I'm, I have nothing left to do. And you can sit there, and you can say, yep, that's my life. And it's so easy to think about It's grass is green on the other side. But here's what I want to encourage you, wherever you go, there you go. So don't play the victim card. Allow God to become your provider, your protector. It just may require you changing your lifestyle and surrendering, right? It's just just part of the process. But here she is exposed, she's black, and she has no way to take care of herself, nothing to do. And it's all part of that process. First thing I want you to think through though is you have to acknowledge your families. In our culture, we want to distract ourselves so easily. We have feelings, we talk about it in my group, we joke about it all the time. We have feelings We just shove right back into our box, right? We don't want to talk about it, we don't want And every once in a while that lid kind of gets cracked, and you're like, oh crap, what now, right? Sometimes you need to actually practice feeling your feelings. This is why the spiritual disciplines are so crucial. When you sit and you sit in silence, and you sit in solitude. It's not isolation. Solitude is this temporary time throughout your day that you're just going to listen to the voice of God. And then prayer is this two-way communication. You're speaking to God, but you're listening to Him as well. And so you, sometimes you have to sit there and you it out to feel it. It's not fun, but you can distract yourself all you want. The famine's still there, and God wants to take you through these famines. It's not an idea of just getting over the famine, but to take you through the famine. Right? Think about the Psalm, the Psalm 23. God does not, oppose, the shepherd doesn't take the, the flock around him, the dark valley. He takes him through the dark valley. You're safe in these dark valleys, not from these dark valleys. This is all part of life. So the first thing is to acknowledge it. Maybe it's the fact that you're not married. Maybe it's the fact that you're getting a divorce. Maybe it's the fact that you're, you don't have the job you want. Maybe it's whatever it is. Acknowledge your family but don't just sit there and act like it doesn't happen. But the other thing is this. Naomi's not the only one suffering, is she? She's not the only widow. But notice how she responds. Here's what she's in. This the chapter one. Naomi replied, return home, oh my daughters. They're about to go back to, the, to Israel. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have more sons Can I become your, uh, who will become your husband and stuff like that? Return home, oh my daughters. Go on. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought that there was hope for me to have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you really be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourself from being married? No, my daughters. My life is too much bitter for you to to share with you. The Lord has turned against me. Notice how many times she says the word me in this passage. Four times in two verses. Sometimes when we have things happen to us, we only focus on ourselves. And if we're not careful, the reality is that something like dark will happen to us. But if you're not aware of it you become, create your own little isolation, then something dark happens in you. Will you become bitter, right? It's all about me and it's all about this. Now, notice Ruth's response here. It says, Mulvite, I just want to put this out there. He does not know the ways of Yahweh right? or anything like that. Here's Ruth's response Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return home and not follow you. Wherever you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will become my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord punish me so severely if anything but death separates you and me. Notice Ruth's response and how many yous she says. She used the word you eight times in these two verses. In a world that is so self centered and so focused on self preservation, Ruth's focus is weak. And This to me is one of those changes that you and I can make. We may be in a famine state. We may be thinking, Man, "What in the world's going on?" What God? It. Maybe it's a sense of isolation. Start thinking more. We notice what Naomi does. She's pushing people away. who want to help her, right? She's not alone. You and I both do this, right? We find ourselves in a famine situation, in a dark situation, and people who love us who want to talk to us and care for us, but well, we push them away. But then here's Ruth that comes along and says, No, no, I'm going to cling to you. Right? I'm going to hold on to you. I'm going to walk with you. This is what we call Hesed. And the Hebrew word is this phrase of Hesed, which uh, the beautiful thing happened when they were translated. So in the 1500s, the reformers started to happen. The Reformation, the breaking from the Catholic Church and stuff like that started happening. And the, the reformers that were scholars were like, Man, the Catholic Church have kind of neutered, in a sense, the power of the scriptures. It's all Latin, and they forgot, like, the Greek and the Hebrew. So these reformers went back into the Hebrew and the Greek and said, "Man, There are words here that are powerful. And Hesed is one of them. They didn't actually know how to, uh, to, to translate Hesed. And so this guy named Mount Miles Cloverdale, 1534, created, uh, coined a new English term, loving kindness. It's not just action. It's not just loving. It's this loving kindness the sacrificial love, the self-centered, or sorry, self, others-focused type of love, that you're willing to self-sacrifice for other people's <laughs> benefit. And maybe that's the example we need to live. Maybe these random act of kindness cards aren't just random act of kindness. But how can we put others first? How can we not just be part of a community that says, oh yeah, that's cool, it makes make you feel good, but actually put some action to it, right? And this is part of that process. Essen is the foundation of an Israeli uh, society. Essen is the foundation of Christian society. Jesus models this. Galatians talks about this, that the fullness of time, Paul, Jesus follows this time, the fullness of time, Jesus steps out of that, Leaving all of that so that he could be with us. That he could cling with us. He didn't wait for us to get good enough. He waited for us just to be ready. And he steps out of it. And I think as we start getting ready for holy week and resurrection and all that, just to understand that some of us are in famine states. And I think God wants to bring us here into a flourishing state. But we have to first acknowledge it. There's two levels that we need to cling on to. Number one, cling on to Jesus. He steps out and he, he wants to be with you and I. And the way we do that, make your sins, believe that Jesus is who the scripture say, says he is, and commit your life to him. You don't have to understand it all, you just have to do it. Right? Sometimes you just have to actually go through that process. And the other one is community. Find others who want to go with life with. Right? This is why our bandit groups, this is why greeting is so crucial. So you're not just sitting here and just going through Sunday morning, but you're connecting with other people. So that when the famine happens, you're not alone. You're not exposed. You're not lacking. And no way to provide for yourself. Ron's going to come back up and lead us into worship again. And as he does this, let me just pray for us. Jesus, thanks for this day. Thanks for who you are. God, some of us are sitting here and we're in a famine state. We may not even understand it or acknowledge it because we don't want to. But God, you know it. And if we were actually quiet enough and still enough, we would have to feel it as well. God, I want to come before you and I'm going to bring my brothers and sisters to you and say, God, you have a plan. And while we're in a famine state, the famine is not the end goal. The famine is the wake-up call. So, God, I pray that you would wake us up. That we would repent and we would turn back to you. And then, as we do this, we we could see this model in your life and in Ruth's life. This loving, sacrificial way of life. God, would you help us to cling to you, but also cling to others? And as we do that, God, will come through the famine states into a flourishing state
1: that you have for us. We love you, God. So I'm going to continue to pray this.